Hello, animation fans, and welcome to another iAnimate podcast. This is episode 26, and I am your host, Larry Vasquez. In this episode, we're going to have one of our very own instructors, Mr. Ted T. This guy has a very rich history in, in animation already. Um, started out actually in the 2D days with Disney, working on such films as Lilo and Stitch, and uh, made that transition from 2D to CG. And so I think we're going to have a neat conversation talking about some of that here. Um, I've actually also had him as an instructor, so I've kind of got a little bit on the inside of this guy's persona when it comes into animation. So I'm very much looking forward to speaking with him about this. Without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Well, Ted, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your time, and we always know that you guys got lives and busy schedules, so we really do appreciate you taking some time and talking with us. Oh, no, lots of fun. Yeah. I'm ready to go. All right, all right. Um, first things first, I always like diving into someone's background and uh, we've had a couple videos with you here at iAnimate, but, uh, I think for some, maybe someone listening to our podcast for the first time and catching up with you here, I always like going into the background to kind of see how each one of, uh, the guests kind of come into animation. So can you give us a quick rundown of how you got into animation? Sure. Long story short, basically I was going to uh, be a lawyer. I applied to law school and, um, you know, the huge application forms and transcripts, etc. I ended up applying to CalArts because it was only half a page on application. <laughs> so that's a real reason. And, you know, at that point, I was just self-taught. I did drawings. I'm like, I, I heard about CalArts and how it was Disney founded. And I really, really never had dreamed of um, being a Disney animator per se. You know, I was more exposed to uh, National Film Board, where I grew up in Montreal which is amazing and uh, in its own right. But uh, so I applied and luckily I got in. The odds were pretty steep that year, but I got lucky and uh, my parents backed me 100% and they're like, you know, you could always go back to law school, but you're going to totally regret not going to animation school because, you know, it's like regrets, they said, are the worst thing you could ever live with, uh-huh. you know, and I was like, okay. So I went to CalArts, I went two years. And made the Disney feature animation uh, internship, which was like the training program back then. Went to Florida and um, the Orlando studio, trained there for, you know, three or four months and um, waited for a call, hopefully, from Frank Gladstone to come back. And luckily enough, did and end up working at uh, Disney feature doing 2D for 10 and a half years. Mm. And then uh, after the studio uh, sadly closed Actually, a lot of people were let go in waves, and I was in the second to last one. So I, I was actually gone about six months prior to it closing. And luckily enough, I got an offer from DreamWorks, and I've been at DreamWorks animating ever since. Almost the same amount of time now, ten and a half years. Now, what was your first feature over at DreamWorks? My first feature was the the illustrious Shark Tale. <laughs> Yes, all of you right now are going, wow, he worked on Shark Tale. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I Jump know, started your career. And not everyone gets to work on like such an amazing feature the first time out, but hey, you, know, you get lucky. No, actually, in, in all honesty, um, people don't remember, but Shark Tale actually uh, outperformed their expectations. I don't know if that's saying a lot, if their expectations were high or low, but it ended up doing well. And thankfully for me, like I'll always look fondly upon that feature because I survived knowing next to nothing about CG. So that was, uh, for me, like survival was a reason to be happy. I wasn't being picky at that point. 
Now, is that where you had people that were like from PDI kind of training you guys a little bit? Well, actually, when I uh, – that's a good question. When I was hired, they sent me to um, PDI to be trained. And uh, originally it was supposed to be eight weeks, and then they cut it down to five weeks, and then they cut it down to three weeks. And um, the people at PDI, the animators there, are incredibly technically facile. You know, and, I, and I've told this story a million times, but I, I find it kind of funny. I hope you don't mind if I tell it. But we were in a group, and um, a really great animator named Cassidy Curtis uh, was sitting with a group of us, the, the newbies. And he said, well, I got to tell you, uh, there's no really – there's no such thing as a dumb question. If you are struggling for more than 10 minutes, you should get up and ask someone because people will be more than willing to help you. And he said, are there any questions? And, of course, I took what he just said to heart. I'm like, oh, I have a question. He's like, yes, uh, you're Ted. I'm like, yeah, Ted. Yep, you remembered. He's like, yep. He goes, what's your question? I said, uh, what's IK? And there was just silence. <laughs> and, and he looked at me and he said, inverse kinematics? Like it was a trick question. And I kind of nodded my head like, mm, yep, and? And I think, and I think at that point he kind of shook his head. He goes, "Wow, there was one dumb question, <laughs> you know." But I always find it funny because uh, he was so patient, and uh, and it's and it's funny to look back and still remember that, you know. Well, there's no IK in 2D animation, so I can see where you're kind of going. Okay, what is this, you know? Yeah, and everyone was talking about it, and you know, it was just such a foreign foreign world to me entirely, actually. You know, with uh, no background whatsoever in it. And, you know, my goal was to um, go down in the annals of Disney history as being a lifer there. You know, it was I loved to draw. I loved 2D. I loved everything about it, the process, the history, my mentors who had, you know, brought me through the system. Uh, I aspired to be like them and to have my place. So what drove you then when you had to make that transition to, to CG? Because obviously that was a completely different transition. So what kept you motivated? I saw the writing on the wall. And um, at one point I asked myself, I said, well, if you start doing CG, it doesn't mean that you stop drawing. And, you know, I really love to draw. And I just thought, well, am I limiting myself by saying I'm only a 2D animator? You know, Growing up in Montreal and seeing National Film Board animation on television all the time, like I'd mentioned, you know, like Raw Carrier, you know, uh, or Caroline Leaf. Um, if someone put oil on glass in front of me, I would love to try and animate with it. You know, if it was um, stop motion, I'd love to try it. So I said, you know what, I, I think I'm hemming myself in by not being open-minded about CG, and you should... As scary as it is and as many lumps and as falls as you're going to take, you should pursue it, you know? Okay, well, I've got a question then for you. This is basically one of the things we've been kind of incorporating with the podcast is asking some of the questions on our members section and getting some feedback, seeing what they want, what questions they want to ask. And so this one's from, and I hope I pronounced this name correctly, but it's Fatih Dogen. And he says, okay. how do you apply your traditional drawing skills to CG? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I actually, this is going to break a lot of people's hearts. I actually don't. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that a lot of the sensibilities that I have, um, graphically in terms of clear poses, very legible poses in terms of silhouette, 
um, strengthening an attitude. I think perhaps I've done 2D for so long that it's kind of incorporated into my work. Hopefully it is. It, it, it isn't always because the big difference is that in 2D, the camera can't turn around the character. And if you commit to certain shapes because they're really nice to camera, and then um, they decide to change camera and rotate it, you know, a mere three degrees, all your shapes are wrong, it looks weird, and you've deformed the character. So I, I've really kind of have had to kind of learn to just make the pose nice from all angles. But um, I don't even actually really thumbnail. I think it's also due to the nature, because I was like, pathological thumbnailer in 2D. Uh, in fact, my my approach, which is called workflow now, we called it approach back then. My approach was to thumbnail, and once I was happy with what I had, I'd blow them up and I'd put them underneath my drawings and redraw over an enlarged thumbnail from the photocopier. Uh, but nowadays, with the advent of reference, I tend to follow that carefully. I tend to observe that and try and understand what it's doing um, so, uh, the, the short answer is I don't really use it as much. I think on forthcoming shows, perhaps like, uh, boo or, um, shows that are more, uh, cartoony, so to speak, I would definitely probably start thumbnailing again for those. A little less reference and more incorporating thumbnails again. No, I don't think I would decrease my use of reference because, you know, reference is good. Um, I mean, the, the, the very meaning of the word is something to refer to. And uh, I think there's always things in it uh, that you don't expect behaviorally, mechanically. And it doesn't mean you need to go one-to-one -one all the time like you would in a more naturalistic style of animation like Dragons or Rise of the Guardians. Um, but you're, there's always something to be learned. So I would not discount reference ever. What are some of the things that, because like for Rise of the Guardians, reference was heavily used on that. What was it from maybe that show particularly that you've taken from the shows you're currently working on now? And maybe you think you'll take for the rest of your career. I think that, um, first of all, actually knowing how to use reference, I know reference, uh, is still kind of, um, a very hot topic out there. You have animators who swear by it. You have animators that swear at it. You have uh, <laughs> everywhere in between. And I think the truth of the matter is, and it's just my opinion, I think many of those who um, really don't acknowledge the use of it or discourage the use of it or put down its usage probably haven't had a long enough look at what reference really provides you. A lot of people think it's cheating and you're not an animator, or they think that you're copying and you're rotoscoping. However, when you're first learning, it feels that way, but it's actually very, very difficult to understand like the complex mechanics and weight shifts that are going on in reference. And ultimately, when those um, are, are added together, what they actually do is they provide um, emotional output, a character is acting or speaking or reacting, but how do you embody all of those? How do you actually physicalize all of those? And really it's just uh, an accumulation and an amalgam of all the body mechanics put together. Body mechanics are useless for their own sake. 
you know, even a walk, if you're saying, wow, that's, that's almost pure body mechanics, but there's even a reason for them to walk a certain way, whether they're happy or sad or limping, et cetera, et cetera, whether they've just walked out of an office where they were laid off or promoted, that walk tells you a lot. So you can learn a lot of those things. And I think learning to truly see reference for what it is and studying it, you start to learn patterns of human mechanics and weight shift and you start to be able to read personalities. So I think um, ultimately that's what I'm going to take away is that it's made me more observant of things. It's kind of funny because I think I shared this in a podcast, but I'm going to keep the name uh, hidden for a uh, past student of yours. Uh, so I'll keep it <laughs> hidden, but basically, uh, who it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was basically kind of struggling with one of the exercises and it was heavily following the reference. And it just, I think it felt that way to him was that it felt like it was rotoscoping, but it wasn't until after he got done with it and started applying those skills to a, a new shot that it all of a sudden clicked for him what you were trying to do for them and for the class. And I think it was just that same thing of just helping them understand the use of reference. What are some of the techniques or advice you would give to somebody studying the reference, what to look for, or is it just a matter of kind of time that, you know, it's just constantly animating and practicing that you, you develop that eye. I think it's a question of time, but it's active usage of that time. For instance, if you are going to figure drawing class and you're sitting there kind of going through the motions because somebody, you know, told you the old adage that, you know, you have 100 or 150,000 bad drawings in you and you just have to keep drawing. Uh, if you go in with that outlook, you're going to leave with a lot of mediocre drawings for a long, long time, regardless of whether you have 50,000 or 250,000. If you go in and you actively um, are choosing and deciding uh, to improve, then there's so many technical aspects you need to learn, perspective, anatomy, gesture. And those are just the basics to get you on the road. And then the next thing, and this is, I find the analogy very, very close to reference, is the fact that uh, when you begin to figure draw, you draw what you think you see and not what you see. And I think the same goes for reference, where you first start to follow you start animating what you think you see in the reference and not what you actually see. So the very, very arduous first step of figure drawing and learning to follow reference are very similar. You need to actually go through that tough step of just li literally putting down what you see. And then knowing that later on with time, as you get better with it, then you start to make kind of artistic editorial decisions about what you're doing where it starts, it has to look better because naturally your first figure drawings are going to be very rigid and stiff and overly structured and you're drawing all this extra anatomy in there. But you know, you have to go through that to get to the next step where you start abstracting what makes a beautiful form, you know, how many fewer lines you could put down to say the same thing. And, and that's where your style comes in. That's where your growth comes in. But you have to kind of uh, like, you know, eat your vegetables first. And um, it's just a lot of people can't make it through that part of uh, learning reference. And then all of a sudden they start being easily influenced by outside uh, voices saying, you know, nah, reference is, you know, you don't want to learn a copy, be an animator. I'm like, really? I, I would think I would speak with some authority about what it takes to animate 
at least in terms of experience that I have. Um, you know, anything that you can use to improve your work, I'm going to use it. Uh, there's no room for being a purist when that means possibly excluding a tool that I can use or a new skill I can learn just because someone uh, has an opinion on it that they can't really support. So part of it's just getting past that hump where pushing, yeah, pushing the through hump that. Is, the hump's tough, mm. you know, and, and, you know, I think a lot of the time people just go, just follow reference, just follow your reference. And they don't kind of explain what to look for. And I think your question is what to look for. And I think, um, like you said, time is part of it, but also just breaking things down simply and not trying to do everything at once and not trying to do a key every two frames. You know, the same things apply where you're looking for the strongest poses in your work. And by that, I mean the, the poses that convey the clearest attitude in your reference and um, kind of earmarking those and going, OK, there's an attitude that I definitely want. So that's at frame 35. OK, and what happens there? And I got to look at it and uh, you just take it from there one step at a time, you know, looking at the root and then looking at the, the chest and then looking, um, the, making sure the feet are working if it's a wide shot and then the arms and then head, you know, so you just take it one step at a time. Do you feel like some of your 2D background, maybe with some of the, a lot of the figure drawing that you had done, do you feel like that's kind of helped you in, in dissecting your reference, you know, and what to look for or? Is no, it I, it really has not, uh, strangely because, um, understanding reference is, um, being able to understand movement in multiple axes and rotations. And uh, it just takes a while to see things. Okay. You know, it just takes a while to see things. So just practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And, and, an active practice and wanting to understand what's happening and, and having a willingness to be excited by discoveries of, Something that one person would go, oh, man, i got to follow reference. Come on, this guys he's not doing anything. There's nothing happening. Why do I need reference? I could just eyeball it. Well, you know what? The person who looks at that same reference goes, wow, what is happening? This is so subtle. Oh, there's a weight shift right there. And look at how the hips kind of tilt. That's what's giving it that attitude. And then you come out of it having really improved. And not only that, you've also uh, done two things. You've also gotten past your discomfort to to grow. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I've really enjoyed uh, in this field is just, um, the, the idea to want to continually grow. I've noticed from, at least from a lot of the people around, I animate instructors, the students is, is not feeling like they've arrived. And I, you know, you've been in the industry for how long now? 22, 23 years. Yeah. And you're still going, I still got so much to learn. Yeah. It's scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's really scary. Okay, well, let me ask you this then. What advice would you give then to somebody who wants to succeed in this industry then? Well, I think most students that I've met, whether it's iAnimate or CalArts or um, YoungArts or you name it, uh, they all have the – we all have the common denominator of being very passionate about it. And I think uh, desire is really important because like anything else, there's days and weeks where I really don't like animating. And uh, it's that passion that carries you through. Like any other relationship, you know, there's going to be very difficult times where you question why you're doing it. 
if you're good at it, uh, why you're spending so much time doing something that's seemingly unrewarding at the moment. But I think the key to success is pretending that you don't feel certain things. If I'm not liking what I'm doing, I'll admit that to myself, but then you quickly come around to why you are. And I think I love to do it. It fascinates me um, more than any other art form that I've kind of partaken in. Uh, and I just mean animation. I don't mean CG versus 2D. I mean just animating. I think the second thing you need to do is kind of park your excuse-making machine in the garage <laughs> and kind of take your lumps, you know, and admit that, you know, along with your failures, you will see success. And I know it sounds like platitudes and cliches, but if you don't work really hard, being an animator at the feature level uh, and at any level possibly, but at the feature level where I'm speaking from, if you don't have a tenacity to get better and make your shots look great, you're not going to make it because this art form will challenge you and it will really push you to the limits of, of, of you questioning whether you ought to, ought to be doing it. You know, I think uh, being devoted, being passionate about it uh, and being hungry for it. I think hunger is not something you can be aware of. You can't say I've got to be hungry, but it's a, it's a byproduct of for a lot of people like being a combination of being excited about it. And at the same time, really uh, being fearful that you're really not that good. Uh, and also kind of wondering how good you can be. So do you still, you still feel that way sometimes? <sighs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> but it's what keeps me dreaming. You know, like I think that I see people around me and I love their work and I, I constantly go, wow, I'm really pushing. And yet these people, I find they're still so much better and they're so much more expressive and they make it look so easy. Uh, and you know me, I'm not shy. I'll, I'll go and talk to anyone about, about what they're doing. And they, I have yet to meet anybody who held back and they're like, Oh, this is what I'm doing. And they'd share. And you know what? That's, that's also the beautiful thing about animation on a, on a higher level is that when you're at an event like CTN, uh, everyone there has like the common love of animation. And you or I could stop in the hallway, literally turn to anyone, and have a discussion where you have two passionate people who love their type of animation, and uh, you leave that conversation being inspired and elated and fascinated and curious. Um, I don't know. Those are all the keys to, to success is Feeling like, wow, I, I thought I knew what I was doing, and I actually I got a long way to go. <laughs> okay, well, this kind of goes into another question. This is from uh, Jose Munoz because he mentions, he says, you seem very passionate about the acting portion of animation in your lectures and seem genuinely enthusiastic about teaching in general. It's inspiring to listen to some, someone talk about something they are truly passionate about. How does being able to communicate and talk about your thoughts on acting and teaching animation affect you as an artist? Um, you know, that's a good question. And I think the whole, the whole teaching uh, aspect of my life 
has been something that I'm incredibly uh, grateful for and humbled by. Um, I have yet to kind of ever send an email or pick up the phone uh, for a teaching gig ever. CalArts, the very first time, um, uh, there was a couple of calls back and forth with the department, but that's been it. And I, I feel like it's, it's kind of uh, life's way of telling me that, you know, the value of animating and keeping it to yourself um, diminishes um, the greatness of what animation could provide to people. I think um, being able to share with others, because I understand exactly where anyone is at their point in their career, you know, from a 17-year-old to, you know, a 45-year-old. I understand how they're feeling about things, and I can relate, because I've struggled. I don't think, um, you know, there's very few genius-level animators out there, and where they're just an open channel. And even then, they have, you know, unquestionably um, unstoppable work ethic. But I'm not that guy who channels animation. I'm someone who works really hard at it. And I think because I've had to really dig and search, I like to help people. And I like to to share with people um, the difficulties that I had in finding what I'm looking for and what I have to say in the art form. Uh, And at the same time, the wonderful kind of discoveries and observations that I've made along the way. Um, not like they're wonderful, like, wow, I made wonderful observations, (laughs) but I mean, like, to me, they're wonderful when I, when, you know, you see Jessica Chastain, uh, in Zero Dark Thirty, um, just emoting pure passion in, in her plea for more men to, to, you know, pursue Osama Bin Laden. It's, we have so much to learn from just seeing like that where we see the different stages of how her face is, is reacting to her thought process of how she has to approach her, her supervisor to get what she wants. And uh, it's so advanced that I don't think in my lifetime I'll have the material or the skill to portray it. But you know what? Like, I like sharing with people that, hey, this is what we should aspire to. And whether it's someone who's going, going into VizDev or storyboard, or rigging, or lighting, and specifically for us, animation. Teaching makes you better uh, because you vocalize what means something to you, and then you're you could possibly sh- have someone share with you what inspires them, uh, and it kind of um, solidifies in your own mind uh, a lot of concepts. Um, and again, it brings you back to like the kind of uh, awe-inspiring amount of, of things that I have yet to discover that I'm dying to, you know. Being a past student of yours, though, too, I also felt like there was a, a particular passion for your students. You, you kind of, for lack of a better term, owned them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in a, in a way that it was uh, – like a mama, mama grizzly bear, you know, would, would, Hey, those are my, my students, you know? Yeah. And so what is it about that, that you take ownership in? 
Um, because you know what? I, it's so funny. You should say that. Actually, no one has ever brought that up ever. Uh, you know, I think I feel that way because you know what? Like the passion of my students, um, makes me feel as if, uh, I owe them a hundred percent. If they're giving me a hundred percent, if they take in their time and some student in Sweden is going to be up at four in the morning or Italy or England or Spain, uh, and they're paying to, to learn, you know, I owe them that I owe them that respect and I owe them that effort if they continue to put that effort in. Um, but I, I guess for lack of a better word, I'm very possessive. Um, of my students, because you know what, for 14 weeks, um, if they devote themselves to their work 100%, I'll devote myself to them improving as much as they can. I just feel like the key to becoming a great anything, but in our case, animator, starts with somebody believing in you. And I think I default believe in people and I need to be let down. I'm not the reverse where I'm like, well, you better, you better prove yourself to me because you know what? Like that doesn't serve any purpose. I think you can, like, you know, you, I can be tough on people and I have high expectations, but you know what? I think when you, when I have my group, I really just want them to be the best animator they can possibly be by the time they leave my workshop or my class. And that is to say until they have a new teacher and then they learn more, you know, just at least for my 14 weeks, um, we're going to just have fun together and we're going to learn together and we're going to work really hard together. But there's such a value in relationships. Yeah, yeah. And I think people forget that it's about people, you know, it's about like animation can be so like high concept. And people are stratified, good animator, bad animator. Um, but you know what? How do you discern that really? Yeah, there's the technical skills. And, you know, obviously, uh, if someone's really, really good, it's going to show. But, you know, that's not the measure of an animator because we're not all on the same measuring stick. Someone who's fantastic now could peter out. And that other person who's, you know, the slow starter could continue to grow forever and bypass them. But I think you have to kind of cultivate the fact that um, everyone's different. You know, honestly, like, and you would know this from your wrestling background and for me and my martial arts background, the reason we enjoyed it is the fact that it's a collective group of people learning the same techniques, really, literally the same techniques, but every individual internalizes them uh, in a different way. Some people get it quicker. Some people get it slower. But in a group environment, all of a sudden, you're challenging yourself to be your best. And when you have a coach that believes in you and just doesn't single out the really talented one, quote unquote, yeah. then you have, you have a unified group of people. And so not only have you helped someone believe in themselves by making them work for it and you just guide them, but they work for it and they get better for themselves, then everyone in that group um, – sees that they're treated equal and they root for one another. Mm -hmm. And then you bond with those people for a lifetime. Yeah. And then you, and all of a sudden the art form means more. I know it's kind of like heady to be saying that, 
But what inspires people to be animators? You want to create out of nowhere. And what better to fuel that than by believing yourself and others and being excited? Yeah. Having gone through like a lot of training that you've had, you know, when you go through the same intense experience as someone else, that it means so much more, you know, that yeah, you absolutely. see your friends succeed. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're even better because you focus more. You're like, this is our group. Mm-hmm. There's a and, level of intensity that rises from everybody. Right. And, but then all of a sudden you're a collective and you're not an individual. And somehow that brings your game up. Mm-hmm. It brings your individual game up when everyone around you believes in you as much as you do. And you're rooting for that next person just as much. And I think I feel that same kind of possessiveness in the, the environment where I want to create a group that really cares for one another and can see like, because, you know, in one class, Larry, you, you know, you've seen people do well at the beginning and struggle in the middle and then, you know, maybe struggle at the end or vice versa. Like everyone's arc of improvement uh, fluctuates during one workshop, Mm -hmm. but you know what? Everyone's there for one another and everyone wants to see each other succeed in an environment where everyone's treated the same and being pushed equally and you're asking the same thing of everyone and um and hopefully they're delivering you know because it's it's about like kind of um making sure that you're honest with yourself you know and i think that group honesty and that bond that's that's why i am like mama grizzly bear <laughs> I dig it, man. I dig it. Okay, well, here's a question. Does that make any sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Is it babbling? Am I babbling? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a master of the edit, too. So, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's some great stuff. No, honestly, I think self motivation is is absolutely essential. But the difference a great coach, or in this case, a great instructor, can bring to that is, I think, is invaluable. I've having my background in wrestling, where we had a uh, a great coach. It made all the difference in the world, you know? So I, I get what you're talking about there. It, it does. It just raises the level from everybody. And you know, also too, Larry, like a lot of uh, us as artists come from a background where we weren't necessarily accepted in normal social circles. And, uh, if you're dealing with a more sensitive type person, right? I think, um, the thing too that I feel very possessive about is the fact that uh, I was always the guy picked last, and I'll be damned if anyone in my class gets treated badly because they don't show that potential. Mm. I think everyone's got the potential as long as they they are there working, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, then I'm there. I've got their back. Very cool. If they work hard, if they don't work hard, sayonara, sucker. <laughs> Why are you going to bring a hundred percent if they aren't, huh? Yeah. No, honestly, that's the lesson they need to learn. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I, I don't like when when people say, oh, teacher doesn't inspire me, so I'm not going to work. Really? Then you're going to have a very short kind of line of success in your life. <laughs> you better take your head out of your behind because you know what? You're not getting anywhere with that attitude. <laughs> okay. This is a question from one of your past students, uh, Martin Smith. Oh, boy. Yep. He says. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, here we go. He says, who's your favorite Martin Smith that you've ever had in class? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe. (laughs) Okay. I figured I had to throw that one out there for you. (laughs) Martin's a very talented animator. Yeah. Great guy. Think about Martin. uh, He's he's very – 
Here's the thing about Martin. I think uh, the day Martin actually believes that, wow, like, I can really, like, he, he obviously knows and believes he can do it. And, you know, he's a great animator. But I think there's part of Martin that always goes, really? You know, like, I can do that? Almost surprised, huh? Yeah, and I think it's very humble and it's very refreshing. But at the same time, I think the day Martin kind of goes, I got this, um, he'll see a new level, you know. But that's the great discovery for everyone. That's the, that's the horizon that you want to see coming over the hill. You know, everyone's hill is different. Yeah. Okay, well, this goes into a question uh, from our very own Jason Ryan. He was supposed to be here tonight on this podcast, but he's a little under the weather, so... Feel better, Jason. Yeah, a little shout-out to Jay. Um, he asks, what do you feel is your weakest and strongest animation skills? Acting, mechanics, facial performance, awesome at everything. <laughs> oh, I, so, wish I, could, I wish I could say awesome at everything. <laughs> um, I think my weakest point is... Uh, very kind of mundane body mechanics. I think, um, I think, uh, I think my weakest point is when I have a shot that's replete full of characters, uh, that all need to be walking, running, etc. I think, uh, I tend to get a little diffused wanting to go quickly. And I think I could probably do a little bit better on that. I don't think my effort is any less. I just think um, vol- the vo- volume of stuff, I think, is like my weaker point where I have to deal with a lot of volume because um, I think I just feel the clock ticking. And where I should just concentrate on each one, I feel like I need to, you know, kind of tick all the boxes that, that production needs from me. And I don't want to let them down. And I feel, you know, being a professional means getting my my coverage done, you know, getting my shots done um, in the in a in a good time frame, but in a way that kind of hurts me when I choose not to uh, give it the attention it deserves. And again, it's not conscious. I think you only see that in retrospect um, because I probably work even harder on those shots than on you know normal shots. But um, it's just, you know, after you, you're doing like a lot of shots in a row with tons of, of characters, uh, it wears you down. I think it's kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Um, best part? Yeah. What are your strongest animation skills? I think acting. Hopefully I can say that. I, I, I don't know if I'm ultimately the judge of that. I think my peers, uh, seeing them react well to my shots is probably the... the only really real way to tell, Mm -hmm. but, um, I enjoy doing it the most and I feel like I have the most control over performance. Um, everything starts to kind of, um, congeal for me when I get an acting scene in front of me. Uh, I think it accesses the deepest part of why I love animation and, you know, it's, um, it's the same effort as I would put into a crowd shot to be very honest but I think all of a sudden, um, you know, the light burns brighter, you know, and and I really want to go after it. So, what kind of acting shots do you prefer? More dramatic, serious, uh, sinister, or do you actually like some of the comedic? That's a good question. I used to think that like all serious and 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 uh, kind of um, dark material was what I liked. 
But, you know, after Puss in Boots, where there really isn't, there really wasn't any, you know, um, Olivia Stafilas gave me some Puss material that was like kind of comedic acting or at least exaggerated drama because I did some scenes where he's regretful that he's let his mom down, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple of funny ones, too, and in the right context of not gags, but character humor, because Puss has all this built in personality. And I think when he acts genuinely within his personality, it's funny for others because here you see a little orange cat wearing boots and a hat with a sword, <laughs> yeah. you know, being contrite. And then all of a sudden that's very incongruous. And I find that very funny. Okay. What's been your favorite film that you've worked on? Uh, 2d, 3d. Now let's go both. 2d Lilo and stitch. Okay. Why is that? It was just, um, it's what you dream about when you go into animation. You dream about a film with great directors who have a very clear idea of what they want and what they want happens to be a, a great story with like humor and great design and a fascinating world um, with real foundation of, of heart and emotion. You dream of working with a crew that is second to none. That crew also happens to be your best friends. Um, You have a chance to stretch out on a character that you never did before. Um, And it all goes well the entire time. And it begins to feel like a dream. And as tired as you are and as much as you realistically need it to be over because you're very, very tired, like at the end of any feature film, you don't really philosophically want it to. Uh, And then you see the end result and you realize that this is one in a very, very rare instance of films that are going to matter to you and to a lot of people for a long time. Now the directors on that one was, uh, Chris Sanders and Dean LeBlanc. Okay, because that's funny because we had um, Jason and Mike Walling on a podcast where shortly after The Crudes where Chris Sanders worked on, and they mentioned that that was one of the best shows that they had worked on as well because of the directors and such. Makes a difference. You yeah. Know, and, and, you know, How to Train Your Dragon 2 now with Dean. Dean is a absolute pleasure, you know, the humblest person I think I know. Yeah, which is in itself humbling for others because um, he's someone with that much ability to not carry any kind of attitude. He's the most accessible, true person, um, honest and straightforward and forthcoming, uh, very deep person, but fiercely motivated, incredibly skilled, and just a master of what he's doing. You know, he's the captain of the ship and, you know it, and you would row to the to the edge of the earth if it were flat for him. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> I want to come back to How to Train Your Dragon two here, but what, what's your most enjoyable CG film that you've worked on? Mm, probably, I don't know. I've had a lot of fun on different ones in different ways. I had okay. a lot of fun on Shrek four because um, Mike Mitchell, the director was such a blast. And Jason Reisig was hoping on that show. And it was just a great time. Like everyone had a great, great time. We wish it, it would have reflected in the box office a little more. I mean, it still did astronomical numbers, but not quite astronomical enough as someone would have wanted. Um, Puss in Boots was great because uh, 
it was probably the first film where someone decided to take me under their wing and said, I'm going to bring you up to who I think you can be. And you don't even know it. And I'm like, okay, I'm going. And, um, who's that? If you don't want to ask Olivier Staffilas. And, uh, he saw my 2d reel and he's like, no offense, but you're not here in your CG. And I go, I'm trying, man, (laughs) you know? And he said, you know what? We'll, we'll take care of it. And then, he ended up pulling me onto his team and I was on a great team before Humpty Dumpty with um, Anthony Graham, my supervisor in Humpty, who was a master at like, comedic acting. Um, speaking of comedic acting, he was doing a great job, you know, but I think Olivier saw that little extra and decided that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take you along. And he did. So that was a great time because he saw something in me and it made me believe in me more. And then Rise of the Guardians was probably where I felt um, this is this is the movie where I'm going to grow into that animator that I, I'm not sure I can be, but I really want to be. Mm. And, and Dave Pape said, OK, I'm going to guide you. And as long as you work really hard, we're going to see what you have to offer. And he was, um, I, I won't pretend that he's not rough around the edges and, uh, people are really not fond of his bedside manner, so to speak. But for me, uh, I can only say the opposite. You know, he was, um, generous with his time and his knowledge. Um, he was very tough on me, mind you. Like when I messed up, he let me know, but you know, because of him, uh, I don't think I was ever riding such a, a high crest of confidence because I'd worked for everything. I'd worked for the result. And uh, I kind of owe that, you know, like basically to Olivier and Dave for those two movies, you know, for sure. Mm. And also, too, you know, the, the team, you know, like Ben Willis and, and, and the guys on Jack. Jacob you know, Gardner. And... Yeah, Jacob and Jalil and Tommy, like everyone I, really, you know, Joe Sandstrom, like the whole team. Um, Henry at the end, Henry Sanchez. But, you know, those guys, uh, we learned together. And so I I learned a ton from David, but, you know, I learned um, just as much from those guys. Now, on How to Train Your Dragons 2, the first one has been obviously a very uh, big hit for DreamWorks. How is it working on the sequel here? Is the expectations a little higher? How is that working for you guys as animators? Well, the expectations are very high. You know, the level of animation is probably unlike anything I've ever seen. I think my opinion of the animation is also colored by the quality of every department kind of being at their best. It's the A-team of every A-team in every department. So, you know, having seen a screening like a week and a half ago, I have to say, in my opinion, that I don't think at the feature level for the type of animation we do, excluding like Miyazaki and, and those styles within feature animation in North America, I don't think people have ever seen anything like this. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and I'm not just like tooting our horn, you know, granted like rise of the guardians for me personally was a great movie, but you know, overall, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it could have been better. Um, but dragons just knocks you on your on your behind because you're like wow it, it, you wonder whether it's a little too 
it's a little too much for people to to take in, you know. Because the sequels is tough, especially you know off of a great film. I think there's to a certain degree an unfair expectation of the sequel because of the previous one, and so I can see where with such a big hit as the first one, where it, it could be difficult and maybe a little stressful at times to to work on this one here. Well, Ted, I really do appreciate your time. I don't want to take up any more. It's always a treat to get you on. And, and again, just even for myself, having a, having you as an instructor in the past, it's always great to get a little extra time with you. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, that was really, really fun. I hope people, I don't bore people to death. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, thanks again, Ted. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>